0: Welcome to Political Rewind, I'm Bill Magnet. All this week we're revisiting some of our favorite shows that featured special guests throughout 2021. Every now and then during the year we took a sharp departure from our daily conversations about politics, public policy, and other areas of concern, and focused instead on people who bring joy to our lives through their art. That was certainly the case when, in September, I interviewed Atlanta piano artist Joe Alterman, whose music you heard at the top of the show. I met Joe about five years ago. He'd been living in New York City and playing jazz piano at venues around town. But he'd come back to Atlanta to become the new director of what was then known as the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. In that role, Joe came to see me one day to ask for my thoughts on how he could begin promoting the festival. I liked him right away, as most people who meet Joe do. He's incredibly energetic and upbeat, and he's one of those people who, as my wife would say, welcomes all good things to the world. What Joe also told me in that first meeting was that he was heading back to New York to do an interview with a jazz artist. When I asked who it was, Joe casually said, oh, Witten Marcellus and I suddenly realized Joe might be a little more plugged into the jazz music scene than I'd realized. What I didn't know in that first meeting was that Joe is widely considered one of the foremost, if not the foremost, jazz piano artists of his generation. Nat Hethoff, who was for his entire career the most important critic of jazz music, wrote about Joe on a number of occasions and heard him first when he was a very young piano player starting out in the business. Here's one of the things Head off said about Joe when Joe was making an early appearance at Bergland in New York. All the musicians who are now considered jazz legends played at Bergland, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, Lester Young, Count Basie, Oscar Peterson, and Duke Ellington, among others. Alterman would have been able to hold his own jamming with any of them. Alterman's continually evolving presence on the jazz scene surely makes people smile and, if the room is right, dance. There'll be no need for any last rites of jazz. With that, here's our show with Joe Alterman. I want to say welcome, Joe Alterman. What a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for doing Political Uh Rewind.
1: Thanks for having me, and thanks for that really nice
0: introduction. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so I wanna, we're going to tell your story and, and weave throughout it uh, some of the music from your new record. You grew up in Atlanta, uh, went to, I think, public high school in Atlanta, right?
1: Yeah, I went to Riverwood.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, and you started taking piano lessons as a very young boy uh, like before you were in kindergarten, I I think. Um, so, so piano has been part of your life for a very, very long time, but at least initially you really didn't love it. That's true. Yeah. I went to my parents when
1: I was about four years old and asked for (laughs) piano lessons. I have no idea why I really don't remember. And and I got a few lessons and I immediately hated it and wanted to quit, but my parents wouldn't let me because I'd already started. So from the age of like four to 11, I was playing and not really enjoying it. And when I turned 11 or so, I, I discovered uh, bluegrass guitar, which, uh, and I wanted to learn that. And uh, my dad made a deal with me that I could have guitar lessons, but I had to keep up my piano ones. And as I'm taking these guitar lessons, um, my dad's buying me some jazz records that he thought might turn me back onto the piano. When I was taking piano earlier, I grew up with a classical background and was always getting in trouble for changing notes. I didn't know there was any, any kind of music where you might be encouraged to do that. And you know, the first couple records didn't work. Um, I remember Bill Evans was one of them. I love him now. But uh, it wasn't until I heard an Oscar Peterson record that I was really uh, converted back, back to the piano. <laughs> but it took a while. Well, I'm glad,
0: you men- I'm glad you mentioned Oscar Peterson because you fell in love with him pretty quickly. Um, me mm-hmm. too. Uh, Oscar Peterson was the guy who, when I was in high school, I was listening to, it was my introduction to jazz, I think. Um, and you wanted to see him live. So the story is that you asked your dad to take you to see him where?
1: He was playing at
0: Birdland,
1: uh, and I was a senior in high school, and I begged my dad. I said, please go to Birdland? He agreed, and we went up to New York. And I remember it was just such a special weekend. I remember the night before we saw Oscar Peterson, we saw Sonny Rollins. And, but I was so excited to see Oscar, and I was so nervous about the whole experience. I didn't want anything to go wrong. I made my dad get to the club three hours early. They didn't open until an hour before the show. And uh, it was it was so incredible.
0: Uh, did you talk to Oscar Peterson? I did.
1: I got very lucky. We basically... Um, we had the seat right behind the piano and if you're familiar with oscar's uh music you you often hear that he kind of grunts along with what he's playing and i was so close to to him that i could hear his grunting and this was i think his very last performance he died only a few months later and i could hear that basically he the reason he grunts is because he's he's uh humming along with what he plays he wants to make sure he's actually playing what he hears in his head versus what his fingers can do and so basically it was interesting because at that point in his in his life you could tell that his his fingers uh, at some points could not do what his mind was telling him to do at this point and it was it was sad and he was getting frustrated with himself uh, but his ballads were just really incredible very powerful and i remember i went up to the owner of the club and I, I just said "Oscar's my hero is there any way to meet him" and i was this you know idiot kid wearing shorts at an Oscar <laughs> Peterson concert and he took me backstage and i remember he put me in the line and the guy in front of me in line was uh, Ron Carter. <laughs> and they, ha- they shared a minute and then it was my turn. And, and I went up and I had never met a hero of mine or anyone famous at that point. And this is my biggest hero. And I was shaking. I was so nervous. And I think he could, could sense that. I mean, I said, Mr. Peterson, you're my hero. Me and my dad flew up from Atlanta just to see you. And he looked at me really, really sad. And he said, you flew up this for this. And it was, it was a really, uh, powerful moment. I mean, you know, you there was the, greatest piano player maybe ever he's kind of opening up to this 16 year old kid who he doesn't know and it was just really you know i had had one encounter with another piano legend a few months earlier and it was it was not like that let's say it's the opposite of that so to see oscar behave like that to me this guy he doesn't know who's so young was just so uh you know it was kind of refreshing in a way to see you know to, to see the human uh thing there and to see you know that this guy at the top of his game doesn't have a big ego.
0: (laughs) What was it about Oscar Peterson's playing? Because you certainly listen to other jazz piano uh, players. What was it about his playing that captivated you?
1: Well, I think at first it was really that that blues feeling. You know, uh, truthfully, when I got into bluegrass guitar the thing I was really into was this boogie woogie line that Doc Watson used to constantly play on his guitar. And I remember when I started taking guitar lessons, my teacher said, you know, boogie woogie music was actually written for the piano. So There was was always this thing of hearing a little blues that really uh, grabbed me and drew me in. I think, you know, that's part of being, being from Atlanta, you know, uh, uh, resonating with that sound, at least for me. And uh, I think it was the blues, but I also think there's a joy in his playing that, you know, just a feeling. You, you can hear people play the same notes that Oscar Peterson played, but it doesn't always have that same feeling. So I'd say it's a mixture of the, 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 that blues feeling and that joyful feeling.
0: Well, you open your new record. The first cut on the new album is an Oscar Peterson song uh, called The Smudge. Uh, why did you pick The Smudge?
1: You know, truthfully, I just—that's such a fun song to play, and it—and it, I love yeah. hearing Oscar play it. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it, I really wish I had a better answer than it. it's just a fun Oscar Peterson song to play. i got
0: you know what? You know what? You don't even have to have a reason for why you decided to play it. As we <laughs> listen to a little bit of the Smudge, our listeners will understand how great it is. You did choose it. Here's Joe Alterman playing the Smudge. Oscar Peterson is a smudge. Joe, I got to admit, I put on your album, heard that cut come up at the beginning. I hadn't read the liner notes. And as I listened to that, I thought, and I sent you a note. I said, man, that sounded like an Oscar Peterson number. And I then read the liner notes. And sure enough, that's just what it was. It's a wonderful song, Joe. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Such a <laughs> fun um, so I want to, we're going to talk about your relationship with a number of jazz artists, uh, but but I want to start with something about that that's fascinating to me. As I said at the very top of the, the radio show, um, you grew up white and Jewish in Atlanta. You're obviously much, much younger than the jazz legends that you have gotten to know and in some cases work with over the years. Um, and, and it does strike me that that, that the acceptance that they gave to you says something about the fact that jazz does have this ability to cross over racial lines. Uh, you go into a jazz club anywhere, I think, in the country, and you almost always see an integrated audience um, because jazz does bring people together. Do you agree with that?
1: I do, yeah. And I, I also think that, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about why I've kind of connected with. Some of these you know greats and heroes uh most or probably all of them are black honestly and uh you know i think it's it's a mixture of the fact that um that i um uh, uh am come across i mean i am very enthusiastic and interested in what they're doing i don't think that it's you know uh really you know uh that i, I don't think that it's that race is really coming into this, this relationship, I can tell, and they've told me a few of them, you know, that they could just tell that I was sincere and really, you know, knew, knew their music and, you know, was very curious about what they were doing. I know for someone, um, I've had a couple who did feel a little closer to me because I was Jewish um they they have people in their lives and careers who were jewish and made me feel that made them feel a little more comfortable as we started to get to know each other but i did have one of these guys tell me he he appreciated the fact that i wasn't all quote new yorked out and he liked how sincere i came across (laughs) and uh enthusiastic (laughs) and how much i had done my research before i went in that conversation
0: (laughs) well that's one of the things about you is that you have an enormous uh understanding of the history of jazz, which comes across I think in your <clears throat> in the records that you make in the choices you make uh, in, in songs um, beyond the songs that you yourself have written. So you, you have this encounter with Oscar Peterson when you're a senior in high school at Birdland uh, and then you decide to go to NYU to study piano, both bachelor's and master's degrees in, in piano at NYU. And somewhere at NYU, you end up starting a friendship, and a, and he becomes your mentor, really, with a tenor, tenor saxophone player, a Houston Person. Now, he is probably not as well, he's certainly not as well known as some of the other jazz artists uh, on the scene, but he has been a masterful tenor player for many, many years. And you began a relationship with him, and he, re- he really took you under his wing, didn't he?
1: Oh, he did. He was great. You know, honestly, growing up, uh, Houston has this this really great, breathy, beautiful sound. It kind of reminds me of someone like a Ben Webster. And growing up, all I really wanted to do was play behind Houston person. And all I wanted to do was play <laughs> the song I cover the waterfront behind Houston first. It. So he came to NYU to give a master class, and I was luckily the pianist in the class. And he asked me what I wanted to play, and so I said I cover the waterfront. We played it. I thought. Well, that's it. I I did what I, you know, I almost felt like that, but, but uh, it was just so exciting. And he gave me his number and we kept in touch and uh, he invited me to his gig and he started to impress things on me. Like, you know, Hey, when you have a gig, people are coming to see you who have spent their hard earned money, uh, you know, to, to, be entertained, to come hear music, to feel something. So, you know, uh, make them feel good. And that was, that was really impressed <laughs> on me from like a very early
0: time in, in my time in New York. And, and, you, and you continue to have a relationship with him. And in fact, now he's playing, he's playing for you. He's backing you up uh, in, on some gigs, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm excited. I'm bringing him to Atlanta, actually,
1: in uh, December to play at City Springs. <laughs>
0: um, so you had another experience uh, that, uh, in which you, you uh, found a, uh, some common ground with another uh, piano legend, Alan Toussaint. You were down. In, I think I've got the story right. You were you're you're going to a concert that Tucson's playing at, and what happens during the show? He asks people in the audience who play piano to raise their hands. Tell the story.
1: Yeah, it was bizarre. I uh, went to go see him at City Winery in New York, and. Uh... In the middle of the show, he just says, we got any piano players in the house? And uh, five people stood up and he said, come on up. And apparently he didn't do this that often or ever. Someone who knew him well was kind of shocked he did this. I don't, I got very lucky. But anyway, he called us all on the stage and he launched into a boogie woogie line with his left hand. And he was going to give all of us a chorus to improvise with our right hands on, you know, on uh, to the the right of him. And he said, he looked at everyone as he's playing this bass line. He says, one chorus each. So the first guy goes up, does his chorus. Second guy does his chorus. I think there's one more guy. And then it was my turn. And I got to the end of my first chorus, and he whispers in my ear, keep going, keep going. And he egged me <laughs> on for like five choruses. <laughs> and he was so sweet. And it was funny, the way he kept egging me on was he kept saying, thank you, thank you. And it was just so sweet. And, uh, I mean, I love Alan Coussaint. <laughs> and he, he passed away it, uh, shortly after that.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, it, 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 that sort of reinforcement – Uh, from someone like that Um, must have been so... Ramsey Lewis, who we'll talk about in a a minute, another real mentor and friend, close friend of yours. Um, He, Les McCann, Ahmad Jamal, they have all stayed in touch with you, the the ones who are still alive, um, and encouraged your playing, which must be a very powerful thing for you personally, but but also important to your staying in touch with the history of jazz, which plays such an important part in the music that you do.
1: Oh, definitely. And I think this kind of goes back to what you, you know, the earlier question about uh, me being this young white guy or whatever. I think one thing about reaching out to these people is that I, I've kind of realized with a lot of my peers that they just often, and I, I thought this too for a while, they just assume these people are too busy to talk to them. And when I got in touch with them, I think that I realized that, really no young piano players are reaching out to them because of this and i think they just appreciated the fact that that i was reaching out to them and they do have time uh when you show that you you care you know um but I, yeah i definitely totally agree <laughs> um
0: i want to talk about some more of the songs on this new record um you you have a uh, a jewish prayer interestingly enough on this record Say shalom which is a part of the the service the, the the jewish service and it's one of the more well-known Jew- songs within judaism um oh say shalom bim who you say shalom ale. you knew we could sing it together um why did you put that on this record there's a story behind that too
1: there, there is yeah so we mentioned uh my my friendship and uh uh mentors being a min- uh learning from les mccann and ramsey lewis these are two of the uh you know, they're often referred to as soul jazz or gospel jazz. Or they're, they're, you, When you hear their music, you can tell that they've been very influenced by gospel music. And people often hear my music and think I grew up playing in a church or something. And I remember talking to Les about this. And, and uh, you know, one day he said, you know, I play gospel funk. And, you know, it was very itch- – I've talked to both him and Ramsey about the fact that I am very influenced by this gospel sound. But I didn't grow up in a church. And so this one day Les was talking about how he plays gospel funk, and he said, you know, it is very interesting that, that I resonate with this gospel sound, but I didn't grow up in a church or with these songs. And he said, you know, it'd be interesting to hear, you know, your kind of gospel influence take on songs you actually grew up hearing, you know, in, in synagogue. So, you know, I, I, it took a while to find the one, but uh, once I found O Say Shalom, I, I uh, felt like I, I found it. <laughs>
0: But, let's listen bye to bye uh, a little bit. Let's listen to a little bit of "Osé Shalom" on the new record. Say you know what that reminds me of, Joe. Another artist who you in fact have brought to Atlanta, and in fact have an ongoing relationship with, um, the uh, piano player Ben Sidron, who was mm-hmm. a professor at the University of Wisconsin. People, he, you know, uh, I know Ben Sidron pretty well. He's not, he's probably not as widely known in the jazz music world as as many of the others we're going to talk about. But Sidrin released at least one record of jazz versions of religious songs for the high holidays, which is it sort of reminds me of, of uh, the way he did that as well, uh, Joe.
1: Oh, well, thanks. I love that album. Life's a lesson. It might be the most popular yeah, right. uh, jazz Jewish album there is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: there you go. The most popular Jewish jazz album there is. Let's do this. Um, we're talking today. We're taking a break. From our usual political conversation today to talk with uh, jazz great, that is not an exaggeration, Joe Alterman, an Atlanta guy who has gone on to be considered one of the finest jazz artists, uh, piano artists of his day. We'll talk with Joe more after these messages. Welcome back to Political Rewind. All this week, we're revisiting some of our favorite shows featuring special guests in 2021. Today, we go back to one of the rare shows we did that focus not on politics or public policy, but rather on artists who bring us joy or illuminate our lives in some way. In September, we talked with Atlanta's Joe Alterman. He's widely considered to be one of the finest jazz piano artists of his generation. Our conversation took place just after the release of his newest album, The Upside of Down. As we talked, Joe shared with me stories about the friendships he struck up with some of the true legends of jazz. And that's how we picked up the second part of our conversation. Joe Alterman. Uh you know, it's interesting. Ramsey Lewis, of course, has been he's been playing for many, many years. Uh, He's had a number of records on the Billboard charts. The one that did best, I think, got to about number five was The In Crowd, which Mm -hmm. most people know is a big crossover record for him. One of the things that's interesting about that, I think, Joe, is that song came along at a time when AM radio was still uh, playing music in many ways. And it was... um, and it was sort of a—it uh, was a place where you would hear many different styles of music. You might hear you might hear the Rolling Stones, and then hear Ramsey Lewis in crowd. Uh, after that, it was sort of a democratic form, and mm-hmm. it was before uh, FM stations came along and uh, uh, you know went into specific forms of music, and then of course streaming services did all of that as well. So there's an interesting way in which the old style, those de- democratic AM radio stations were very helpful to guys like Ramsey Lewis.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, when I grew up, uh, I mean, I remember my mom who's not really a big jazz fan. She really, I always grew up hearing Ramsey's name more associated with people like Martha and the Vandelles. And, you know, yeah. uh, she, she always kind of associated more with that. And I know when, when the in crowd was on the, the charts. I know it was Sam, sand- when it got to its peak, which I think was either three or four, I know it was sandwiched in between the Beatles and Bob Dylan. <laughs> so you don't see that with a lot <laughs> these days.
0: <laughs> you, you, you've known Ramsey Lewis for a long time. He says of you, although much younger than I, Joe Alterman is an inspiration to me. His piano playing, his will, his will to explore, and his ability to swing is a joy to behold. Um, And then, Les McCann, Les McCann says, as a man and a musician, Joe Alterman is already a giant. Um, when you talk to artists like that, uh, do they talk to you about the struggles earlier in their careers? I mean, although jazz is a unifier today, those artists lived in segregated times I am sure they went through struggles on the road in certain parts of the country when they played have do they share those kinds of experiences with you?
1: They do especially Les. um but he always he's I, if anyone who knows Les, he's he's got a kind of reputation for being a not a prankster but a a sort of prankster and basically he'll tell me these stories, but he'll also tell me how he got back at the person who, you know, he was telling me about, he was playing in uh, uh, Las Vegas uh, many years ago and he had a big hit too. It was compared to what? And it was right after that song Mm -hmm. came out and he was playing in one of the big hotels. And, you know, they told him to use the service entrance when he, when he entered the hotel and they told him not to play compared to what either. And at the time, uh, and Les was really upset because he was, his, his wife came to all these shows and he didn't like her not being able to go through, you know, the front door. And he was just, you know, it was it was it was very demeaning, very upsetting. And what Les did, I mean, <laughs> is he had a choir with him at the time, and he, uh, you know, the Hallelujah chorus, you know, Hallelujah. He actually yeah. had the chorus replace the words Hallelujah with the MF word. We can't say it. And oh. <laughs> when it was time to start the show, they went into that version of the Hallelujah chorus. But I mean, <laughs> and uh, he he just has a lot of. You know stories. He being named Les McCann when he was in Chicago for a during St. Patrick's Day, someone entered him in some big Irish uh, contest, <laughs> and they thought that Les McCann was this Irish guy. And he goes to, to the competition and he wins the competition fairly, but they wouldn't admit it. And he had to win it uh, three times in a row for them to finally give him the award. He did tell me about another time. Um, I mean, he laughs about it now, but he, it was rough. He said he did a gig in Birmingham, Alabama, um, when he was younger and he was introduced as Ramsey Lewis. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh-huh. Ramsey has talked to me a little bit about it. Um, but he, he was mostly up North and, um, he, he had an experience when he was younger going to visit his grandpa who lived down South. And he remembered being about to get off the train and, uh, and he saw someone, you know, a young white kid push his grandpa, and that really stayed with him. Uh,
0: yeah. Mm. You talk about Les McCann, and there's a, there's a song on the album that mm. um, you put on this record because of Les McCann, Don't Forget mm. to Love Yourself, which is perfect to think about after the story you just told us. Don't forget to love yourself. Mm. Talk about that song.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, um, you know, basically, Les lives in LA, and I'm on the East Coast. And, you know, we met in probably 2011. I opened for him at the Blue Note in New York, which is another funny story. <laughs> but uh, anyway, after that, we started talking after all of my gigs. So that would be, you know, about 10 a.m., 10 p.m. his time, but 1 you know a.m. my time. And we'd be on the phone for hours. And, you know, he's, he's in rough shape, unfortunately. He's okay, but uh, he can't really play the piano anymore. And so for years, when he gets an idea for a melody, he would call me. And basically about uh, three years ago, he had to go into a rehab center. And he's been in this rehab center, you know, ever since. And you know, he's basically in a bed all day looking up at the ceiling. It's just, you know, sad. And I I do my best to bring as much light into his life as I can. But one day he called me and he said, uh, I got a new melody. And uh, he sang it for me. And he said, you know, put your, put your thing to it. And so I, that means basically add chords to the melody. So I added chords. And then he liked what I did, and he said, uh, come up with a title. And I thought back to Les's voicemail uh, before we went, before he went into the rehab center. And it always was, hi, this is Les, but give me time to get to the phone. And Don't forget to love yourself. Yay, yay, yay. Uh. <laughs> don't forget to love yourself. That's perfect. And uh, it really is. It's really special. Not only the theme of the, the song, but it, but it really is reflective of our friendship. The first thing Les ever said to me. Or not the first thing, but one of the first, you know, teaching things is he said, you know, everything in this world uh, boils down to either being love or fear, and you need to choose love or fear at all times. And he's he's very, you know, we have a lot of uh, funny times together, but we have some very deep kind of spiritual uh, ones too. And this song kind of is reflective well, of that to me.
0: So, good way to introduce a little bit of Joe Alterman mm-hmm. Les McCann song Don't Forget to Love Yourself from Joe's new record Joe, I got a little technical glitch in there. It's such a beautiful yeah. melody. I, po- I apologize for that. That's my doing. That's a beautiful melody. You know, Joe, one of the things that's interesting, um, we started by talking about Oscar Peterson. And one of the things that, uh, and you talk about why you love him, being one of the greatest of all jazz piano players. Um, and, and I learned to love him because I love what a romantic artist mm-hmm. he was he was able to bring so much romance to his music and and you have that that song is obviously mm. a great example of jazz piano at its most beautiful and most romantic i think yes oh,
1: oh no thank you yeah and i mean um, you know, that brings to mind because you mentioned Oscar's romanticism and the romanticism of these people that I'm so influenced by is, you know, truthfully, I didn't get into jazz because of the solos. I got into jazz because of the neat things that they were doing to the melodies that I already knew. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, when I first I, I talked to Ramsey about this often, you know, when I first got to know his music, I wasn't familiar with a lot of the songs. And so to me, the, what was really interesting was the solos. I didn't know what was the melody. I just knew, you know, to me everything felt like a melody because his solos were so melodic. So I've really gotten been influenced by people whose solos, you know, get stuck in my head just as much as the melody. <laughs> and Oscar was definitely <laughs> one of those people.
0: <laughs> yeah, I I remember years ago one of my, my favorite uh, albums of his was um, the he did he did show he did covers of show of of Broadway shows. Uh, My Fair Lady, uh, West Side Story. And I'm thinking of that now because his interpretations of those are just what you're talking about. Uh, it's not so much what the melody was, it was how he played around the melody that made him so special.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> to <laughs> me, and hearing Ahmad Jamal do thats is, he's is—he's—he's the master. He yeah. can leave out notes that you somehow still hear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Talk about Ahmad Jamal because you have a close relationship with him as well. So tell us a little bit about what people, and and I hope there's people out there listening who say, gee, I'll start listening to some of these artists I haven't known. What is it about Ahmad Jamal? And tell us about your relationship with him.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I guess if if Oscar Peterson's music really drew me back into the piano, it was Ahmad Jamal's music that really made me feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. There was something in his music, I remember it was the song, Like Someone in Love, just a little one second blip when I was a kid that I, I I remember thinking, I think that, you know, I really resonated with it. And I felt like if I really practice one day I might sound kinda like this. I heard something of myself in him. I don't know why or how or and I just I always loved both his touch on the piano. It was very light. I loved his arrangements and I loved uh the space he uses. And interestingly one time I mentioned uh, something about loving the space he uses and he corrected me. It's not space, it's discipline. <laughs> and uh, I like that. But basically I got, I got to know him and I don't know him as well as I know Lester Ramsey, but we do uh, communicate. And he's very nice to me. It's, uh basically I uh, had to do a project at NYU where I interviewed an artist and uh, wrote about it. And I called up his office and I didn't realize I was talking to his wife and she liked talking to me. So she asked him to do this interview with me. And we did this nice interview over the phone and, the time, I was interning at the Blue Note in New York, the club. And uh, everyone in the office knew that Ahmad was my hero. And there was one show happening, and someone said, uh, Joe, Ahmad Jamal's here to see the show. And I, I went downstairs, and I was preparing to, you know, reintroduce myself to him uh, to say I was the kid from NYU that interviewed you. And I walked over to his table, and he just said, Joe Alterman, how'd we do on that paper? <laughs> I said, what? And he said, I looked you up, and we basically um, – I'd see him every once in a while at the Blue Note, but really what started our kind of friendship, you know, our uh, uh, relationship, I'd say, was I was assigned to help him out one year, be his, at the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts Jazz Masters Award. So I was kind of not really helping him out, but, you know, just, you know, if he needed anything, I was there for him. And I remember at the end of the day, we said bye, and then he left, but he came back and he looked at me and he looked very serious and he said, keep your enthusiasm. It's necessary. And I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but then I had a gig a few nights later where I wasn't in a great mood and someone came to talk to me and I just thought, keep your enthusiasm. So I, I I shake some enthusiasm through this conversation. I ended up getting a ton of work from that one conversation. So I really recognized something very wise about him in that moment. And that was kind of the beginning. And we started emailing, uh, he's always shared great advice with me.
0: I, I wanna go back. Um, we're gonna take another break. Um, uh, but but in, in fact, Sam, why don't we play this into the break? Um, we started at the very beginning of the show with pure imagination, the Anthony Newley song, uh, which he wrote for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Gene Wilder sings it in the movie. Um and I'm a you know, I'm an Anthony Newley nut Joe. I mean, mm. I, I love his broad, Broadway musicals, Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd, Stop the World, I Wanna Get Off. But that song, and the reason I want to go back to it is it strikes me it's an example of what you were talking about. One what, what of the things that you're recognized for. And and it's kind of like what you talked about in terms of uh, the artists who know how to play around a melody but aren't crazy. They don't go off so uh, directionless that you have no idea what they're playing. And I think Pure Imagination and the way you've approached it is an example of, of that. Oh, well... No,
1: thank you. Yeah, I mean I guess it's really to me, I think that, you know, I think of people like Les and Ramsey and Ahmad, it's like let's take a melody and make it more beautiful. A lot of times I hear stuff today and it's not to knock it at all, it's just a different approach. It's more kinda of guess what song I'm playing. And so my goal has always been let's make this melody even more beautiful.
0: This is also so joyous. And it's 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 just we need music like this song right now when we're struggling with COVID, when our politics are so toxic. When I listened to this recording of Pure Imagination on your record, I just thought, boy, do I need a break. So as we go into our break, uh, let's listen again to a little bit of Joe Alterman, Anthony Newley's Pure Imagination. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Let's get back now to the rebroadcast of a show we did in September with Atlanta piano artist, Joe Alterman. He's one of the most widely heralded jazz players of his generation. He is also the director of a major Jewish music festival in Atlanta called Naranana. Uh, As I said at the very beginning, I first met you when you were coming back here to run what was then called the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival. And with no disrespect intended at all, because from the very beginning, the intentions to create a festival were wonderful. But in the earliest days, and I say this as someone who's Jewish, it always I always thought about klezmer bands and Israeli folk duos uh, singing uh, Hebrew songs. And it was not something I wanted to spend a lot of time going to. You have transformed the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival into a festival that's still speaks to the roots of Judaism and Jewish culture, uh, but it's much broader and uh, you've changed the name. It is now Naranana. Talk to us a little bit about what you've tried to do with a Jewish music festival.
1: Yeah, well, um, yeah, when I came on, our, our, the previous iteration of the festival, really it was called the Atlanta Jewish Music Festival and it defined Jewish music as a Jewish person playing music. So, you know, uh, and it's no knock on anything, but the draw was that you're seeing a Jewish person play music. And to me, as a Jewish person who plays music, I would wonder, you know, what's the Jewish part, honestly, a lot of times. And so I came and I, and I would always ask myself, what is Jewish music? What, re- what really is it? And, you know, I thought I'm going to come into this job, get the answer, and then we'll be cool. So I met with, you know, 300 people and asked them the question, what is Jewish music? And I literally got 300 different answers. And, and. Oh my God. Sense- I thought
0: I was special, Joe.
1: Go ahead. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: well, you, know, uh, Make your you point. know, I'd get everything from, it's anything from Israel and I'd show a Taylor Swift cover band from Israel. And then, you know, it's anything in Hebrew and I'd show a band that sings Johnny Cash tunes in Hebrew, You're, you know stuff like that. And I could find an exception to every one of them. So I felt like all of them are right, but none of them are right. And so my takeaway was that the, the Jewish part of the music is really this story about the music, not necessarily the music. And so to me, that's really Jewish contributions to music. You know, I mentioned this to Wynton Marsalis at that interview thing, and he said, Jewish music, uh, interesting, not really a thing, but all over American music. I thought exactly that's, that's this. And, um, So basically, as we started to transition from this difficult to define Jewish music thing to what I was really calling Jewish contributions to music, I knew that the name didn't really match what we were doing anymore. And we needed something that was a little more, you know, reflective of what we're doing and a little more, you know, and what we're doing is really exploring a lot of the Jewish contributions to American music, which has been done a lot with the Black community. So it's it's not just a Jewish story. And music's for everyone. I wanted this to reflect that. So... We found the word Naranana, which comes from the Jewish song of celebration "Hava Nagila." It means "Let's come together and sing," and that's really what we're all about. And I wanted—I think it better reflects that and does reflect that more than uh, our previous name. But I'm—I'm I'm proud of it. I know uh, we got a lot going on. It's good stuff.
0: <laughs> You've—you've uh, you've got some concerts coming up. Um, I think you're now pretty much your venue is typically going to be at the Sandy Springs Performing Arts Center, right?
1: We have a big uh, partnership within this coming year, um, but we do have, we're going to bring a, a very cool tribute to the great jazz and preserio Norman Grands uh, to the mm-hmm. Woodruff Arts Center with uh, Benny Green, John Clayton, and Jeff Hamilton. Um, but yeah, at City Springs, we will be uh, bringing David Grissman, uh, Michael Feinstein, this concert I'm doing with Houston person. And we're going to revisit a show we did a few years ago, which is with ATL collective. And we're going to uh, tell the story of chess records, the Jewish owned record label in Chicago, the complicated uh, story that, uh, but it, it creates that label created so much the best American music. That's hard to imagine America without. So we're going to do those, those five shows coming up. Uh, very exciting.
0: All right. Um, I, I there's, you can go to the neuron uh, Website and check out the concert Sam. Maybe we can post a link to that um, On our our social media platforms. Let's go back to your record you. uh, Joe I You, you I started the, the, at the very top of the show. Uh, I said uh, That one of the things that was important to me about this record was the song upside of down which also is the title you've given to the album um, it's got special meeting meaning for you as well, doesn't it? And this is a song that you wrote.
1: It is. Yeah, I wrote this song in April 2019, but I couldn't come up with a title for it forever. So I' play it at a gig and make a stupid joke about how it didn't have a title. And uh, you know, nothing came to me until around you know May last year when you know everything was canceled and I also I had the you know, I had more time to spend on the piano, but with nothing to prepare for. So you know, once I realized, wait a sec, let's use this as an opportunity to see what you actually want to play. I was looking for all the some some good within all the bad, and that's when the title, the upside of down, came to me. And it's uh, you know, it was very, you know, I guess, you know, jazz music is really helpful during difficult times. You know, if you listen to. Louis Armstrong, to me, I think, you know, the thing I take away from hearing his sound is not that he's a great trumpet player, which he is, it's that he has an optimistic sound. And there's something, you know, there's a phrase that hurts so good. There's something about jazz music that uh, is just, even when it's sad, it's got some happiness in it. And it's just very uh, uh, inspiring in in difficult times. And uh, that's kind of what got me, led me to the upside down.
0: Well then, let's listen to a little bit of uh, Joe Alterman's recording of his song, The Upside of Down. Mm side of down, Joe Alterman. Uh, Joe, do, do jazz records sell these days? Uh, and I guess that's a stupid question in a way, because the point is many of them are downloaded on Spotify now and that so let me ask it in a different way. How, how popular are jazz records these days, whether it's because you know what the downloads are like on Spotify or in fact CDs that are sold. But is it a popular musical form right now, or are you swimming upstream? I think it's definitely swimming
1: upstream. But I think what I, I've uh, you know, noticed is that you know, many people have preconceived notions around the word jazz. And so many times people will come to a show and say, I'm here because I like you. I don't like jazz. And I'll say, when have you heard jazz? And they actually can't tell me. And then at the end of the show, I get this all the time. I don't like jazz, but I liked that. Was that jazz? I say it really was. No, it wasn't. And so, <laughs> so I, I do. Uh, I, I, I've done pretty well uh, this, you know, these past few years, kind of turning people onto to jazz. I feel like, or at least in my music. Uh, okay, um, and uh, um, you know, I, I sell CDs. I mean, that's the good thing about jazz. Does have a bit of an older audience. by buy CDs. Yeah. I was in Montana last <laughs> week and sold a ton of CDs. <laughs>
0: joe alterman we we are really just about out of time Uh, i'm going to give you a choice joe i uh, would like to play as we go out either your recording on this record of time after time or days of wine and roses tell me which one you'd like to hear we'll start sneaking the music underneath me as i thank you and say goodbye which one do you want joe how
1: about time after time
0: I would pick Time After Time, to A <laughs> great, great song. Jewel Stein and I think Sammy Kahn. Let's listen. Mm-hmm. And as we do, Joe Alterman, it's been just a great pleasure to uh, have you on Political Rewind today. Such a break from our shows, which are important, talking about politics, but you remind us of how valuable music is in our lives, especially at times when we are just trying to figure out the world around us. So Joe, thank you very much. I wish you nothing but success with this new record, The Upside of Down. Joe, thank you. You're the best, thank you. I talked with jazz piano artist Joe Alterman in September, soon after his new record, The Upside of Down, was released. As we leave you for today, I'm Bill Nygut. Please remember, take care and stay healthy.